finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things, and, and then, then we, we talk about them. And then we talk about them. Uh, we are continuing, for this episode, our series on... The Wicked and the Divine. Uh, we are going to tackle Volume 3, which, do you have the title? It's called Commercial Suicide. It was published in 2016, and all the issues are from 2015. Yeah, and this is a bit of a departure from the previous two volumes, in that this one has a bunch of guest artists. So it's sort of, I, I mean, like every volume, it's written by um, Karen Gillan. But Kieran Gillan... But uh, I think we'll shout out the artists as we get to their individual issues rather than doing them all up front because there's a bunch of them. I was kind of like not fully on board with the concept of having like every issue have a different artist so early in the series. But I feel like they really work. I think the stories are matched perfectly to the art. Of each issue. Yeah, I think they managed to do a good job with working this into the structure of the series. It comes after a big dramatic point. This is kind of like a breathtaking, scene-setting sort of run of issues. Each one is from a different character's perspective, so it makes sense that they would have a different artist. This is not the actual plot moving forward, so it doesn't necessarily feel weird that it's not the same consistent creative team. Like, presumably in the next volume, we'll jump back into the forward momentum of the plot, and we'll be back with McKelvey on every issue. So, the com- the compiled volume two that we did last time ended with Lara being turned into Persephone. And then getting killed. And then getting killed. Yeah. And then it's just sort of, this is like the Sandman interlude. Like, it's still in the world of what's happening in The Wicked and the Divine, and there are some basic plot points that are pushed a little bit forward, but the overarching storyline is not addressed in, like, a substantial way. Yeah, I think Sandman is a good... The Sandman interludes are a good comparison point. Like, honestly, of all the stuff we've read, this feels the most like The Wake, and it's coming, like, a almost exactly a third of the way into the book but it is also after the apparent death of the main character right so let's get right into it so the volume opens with issue number 12 and then kate brown is the guest artist do you want to talk a little bit about the artist before or you just want to get into the story uh i didn't i didn't do a ton of research like if people's names stand out to me i'll call them out um I mean, I'm sure I've, I, I'm almost certain I've read stuff from Kate Brown before. I, th- I think she's done like some. Uh, maybe she, I might actually be getting her confused with somebody else. Never mind. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's just get into the issue. I mean, I think well, I'll say up front. I think all the art in this is good. I don't think there's one of these that I was like disappointed or even like not impressed by. Oh, I feel the same way. They did a really good job of picking people, and also like none of them are are um, none of them are trying to ape McKelvey's style. They, they're not. They didn't recruit a bunch of uh, Gilbergs to try and pretend to be McKelvey, which is a nice like you know. I think I think that's a an impulse you might have as someone who's putting together a series and your artist is 
you know, out of, you know, not available for a while. Right. So this issue opens up with a video interview uh, uh, with Laura predating her change into Persephone. Mm-hmm. And then it quickly goes to, and I forget her name, the intern that worked with Cassandra. Beth? Beth. I believe it's Beth. She's the one who uh, ratted them, I guess, yeah, ratted them out to Ball in the first volume and was subsequently fired. And she's been sort of just hanging around the scene as a source of drama, which is a very, like, one another one of those touches this book has that makes it feel true to, like, teen culture and like music scenes that there's just like somebody who sucks who's just always around but spoiler alert she continues to suck and always be around she and two other fans or fandom you know people that follow them she she has her own like uh followers the same way that cassandra did she has like a camera guy and uh a sound engineer that are like with her and she's sort of not quite as like skillfully filling the role that Cassandra used to fill or she's trying to yeah I think she's looking for a scoop and then I guess this happens right after the rave with the Morrigan and she's looking for a scoop and she decides that she's going to create her own scoop by sort of manipulating some of the gods And yeah basically what happens is um Ball is very angry about the death of Inanna. Uh, you know, this is like the most directly that the comic has dealt with the fact that they were at some point in a relationship. And Ball and Beth sort of link up with this plan to uh, draw out the Mora again. And this is her way of like getting in with them and getting an interview with Ball. And then. Uh, she does draw out the Morgan. Morgan and Ball have a big fight. It's broken up by Woden. And uh, the Morgan is captured. And that becomes a big running thing through this volume. Is that she is in prison throughout the rest of it. And then we get the, the very la- end. We get like the last tease that uh, Baphomet's still lurking around. And that he seems to be contemplating like... I, like, you know, that he, he indicates to him... He says... You or me, no choice, no choice at all. Like, indicating that he doesn't really even have any loyalty left to the Morrigan. He's fully on his own at this point. Yeah, and I mean, we'll get into the relationship in in one of the issues that's specifically about him. But I kind of feel like those two were... They had a pre-existing relationship, and even this sort of pantheon has pulled apart or stretched their relationship to the limits. And I guess, like, dealing with the Morgan is kind of like dealing with, like, a crazy kind of, like... It's like dealing with three people with three different personalities, yeah. and they're all in conflict all the time. So it's got to be very chaotic, trying to, like... Well, yeah, well, later in this time, we'll get more context for the kind of person that Baphomet is. And I think it makes his... I mean, I don't... I, heel turn is probably the wrong word, because they're all already kind of heels, but it makes his heel turn make maybe more sense at least gives it more context so beth does the same thing that laura does she goes down into the tunnel and she draws out the moor again and then as she's filming it she ball shows up and there's a huge fight and i think it's i this is one of the things i liked about this issue is these sort of non-conventional panels and then you they're sort of like you can see that there's a fight and then 
like the graphic part of like what's being the action is very graphic very traditional comic book you can see like that we talked about this the screen tone in the background you know the dots and stuff like that and then right in the middle of the fight Woden shows up and you kind of really start to understand that Woden is like the biggest asshole of them all yeah I, so is it unreasonable for me to think that like Woden is essentially the main character of this volume? I think so, but it's kind of it's very stealth. Yeah. You don't really understand the importance or the machinations of Woden until you finish reading this at this this. He's he's like quietly becoming like he's kind of the destiny I think of this comic. Oh yeah, he's he's like quietly becoming sort of like I think maybe the most interesting character. Uh, yeah, so I mean, so that's that that issue. Do you want to move on to the next one? Definitely, but I wanted to talk about like the art style. Yeah, like what I thought was really interesting was these sort of like uh, monotone color palettes. Like she had panels that were all different shades of green mm-hmm. and red, and then the emotion sort of drove the color choices. So it's like Ball and Morgan are fighting. It becomes more reds and oranges. And then when Woden shows up, there's more sort of like these lightning bolts that are like electric neon colors. I thought that was really yeah. nice. Oh, just to clarify in case people weren't, it wasn't clear. Like in addition to doing all the art, uh, doing the pencils, Katie Brown is the sole credited artist on this. So presumably she's coloring it and inking it. So these are not the the standard Matt Wilson colors, and she uses a little bit more of a muted color palette as a baseline than right. he does. And like I, you get like you said, like when the gods are fighting, you get those, some of those more extreme high contrast, high saturation colors that we see from Wilson regularly in the series. I think, but I, I mean, her color style is there's lots of black, and then there's complementary colors that sort of pop that black out. But it's not that sort of like hazy, like frenetic coloring that you'd seen in the first two issues. So yeah, I think yeah. it's, re- and I really, I thought it was interesting that the characters are drawn in the style of the artist mm-hmm. and they subtly change by each artist, but they're still familiar enough that you know who is which character. I really like that. Instead of saying, like, we have to draw the characters exactly how they look in the first two books. The artist is given some kind of freedom to like make the issue look and feel more in their artistic style, which I think is very nice. Yeah, everybody they pick for this volume has sort of like a strong uh, skill at cartooning. Like we don't get a you know, everyone is recognizable. There's no like there's not a lot of same face syndrome going on here. Yeah, and I think her style drawing the people they're very realistic. They're very modern. There's not a lot of like abstraction in the depiction of the people, which I think kind of sort of gently moves you into the volume because as it goes on, different artists really start to have like different avant-garde styles and the characters start to show like changes in them. Yeah. No, I, I, t- I totally agree with that. I mean, she, I was so pleasantly surprised by this because I think of all of the artists working on this volume... She's the one I'm least... Kate Brown. I think I was calling her Katie Brown, which is not how she's credited. It's Kate Brown. Right. Uh, she's maybe the one I'm least familiar with. I'm going to look it up to see if she's done anything that I I know of. 
I'm getting like very few Google results. I mean, she's on Twitter. Yeah, no, she was the one. This is the one I'm least familiar with, but I, I dug this. I would, I would read another book by her. Yeah, definitely. So issue thirteen is Tula Lote. Yeah, so she's uh, the thing that I remember her or recognize her art from is she did a book called Supreme Blue Rose with Warren Ellis for Image. It was like a tie into the Supreme. Supreme's like a Superman pastiche character. Uh, Alan Moore worked on a Supreme comic in the '90s. I think we talked about that a little bit during our Swamp Thing run or our Swamp Thing series because one, written by Alan Moore, and two. Uh, Rick Veach, who was one of the prominent artists on that, did a bunch of art in the Supreme series. Uh, I dig her art style a lot. I think it looks really cool. I really like the colors. She's Again, she's doing everything. She's the sole credited artist on this issue. I fucking love the colors in this issue. Yeah, her colors are really super saturated. They really have sort of like a pop art feel. I liked it because it sort of reminded me the most of like the classic almost like 80s like superhero artwork all the women are very voluptuous but they're not like objectified which is good because a lot of the story is about yeah object- yeah about it's a it's a story about objectification yeah she's got a very i don't i mean yeah i, I could i could see 80s uh i'm trying to think of what the she's got like a very like cla- like uh sleek classic almost like um ad house kind of style yeah it kind of reminds me of sort of like the women are almost they're dressed in modern clothes the coloring is modern but they really have this sort of art nouveau feel to them they all have like this sort of flowing hair mm. and this like the colors are really like tight the lines are very tight there's no sort of like blurring yeah but she's looser than a McKelvey who has like this a, a similar like super tight very like pop art um you know, very classical advertising style. She's a little bit looser. She's got like, um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but yeah, but it's I think like it's, a, it's like, similar but very different. But I was thinking like, there's sort of like you can see this. There's almost like this graffiti sort of influence, a street art influence in her work. Mm. But then also there's like sort of like a fashion illustration kind of vibe coming yeah, from totally. it. Like, the clothes that, especially Tara, because she's supposed to be, like, a fashion influencer. Her clothes are very, like, stylishly drawn, very modern. And I think, like, the way that she draws these women, that they're kind of, like, they're vulnerable and strong at the same time. Which I think really suits the storyline. Oh, like, old school romance comics, I think, is another big reference point here. Like, um, or even, like, even, like, old school, like, uh romance like novel cover illustrations like, but i think what she the her depiction of tara who's like sort of in this bodysuit this sort of unitard kind of really reminds me of like 80s like wonder woman sure totally. and i think like that's kind of like i mean the rest of it is very modern she has like this mm-hmm. sort of um you know she has her face painted and and the mask that she wears and I think, like, the story is is that Tara is a young girl who is very beautiful, and she's had, throughout her life, had to deal with, like, being objectified. Mm-hmm. There's, like, a flashback to, like, boys, like, heckling her, you know, like, street harassment going on with her. 
and that she's kind of like always taken for granted and not sort of like accepted because she's so beautiful. Like mm-hmm. she wants to be a, a songwriter and a performer and people are just like looking at her like exterior and judging her. Yeah, there's a lot of this issue about like, you know, her people viewing her purely as this uh, object of beauty and lust and being angry when she does things that don't conform to that. And then this like tension of like you lean into it to gain some semblance of power and control and then that sort of becomes controlling of you in a certain way. There's this whole thing in the beginning of the issue where she's doing one of these god show things, these rituals that everyone does, and then she stops to try and play some music and everyone gets mad at her because like she's slowing it down. I mean, it's a little bit like when an artist tries to play a song from their new album and you just want to hear the hits. But it's also like they they want to look at her and appreciate her as this figure of beauty and she they don't like it when she tries to confront them with her like own wants and desires that are not lined up to what you know the people watching her want. Yeah, and I think it's very telling because there's a scene in the beginning before she's transformed into Tara where she's at a coffee shop and she's trying to do a show and she's already got a mask on. Yeah. Because she's already, like, accepted that, like, her visual appearance distracts from her, like, art. And, she, you know, she's trying to do this show, and there's no one there, and she's, like, pouring her heart out, and then Anaki shows up, and she sort she gets transformed. Yeah. And then she tries to use her, like, god powers to still, like, have her musical career. And like you said, people are like, I'm not having it. They want the show, this sort of Mm -hmm. persona of Tara. They don't care about the actual person that Tara is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, like, so much of this issue is about, like, the tension between, like, appearances and the assumptions people make based on your appearances and your own desires. There's a lot of the, like, the... uh, the tension between like being a commercial artist and wanting to be an actual artist it's a pretty it's a pretty different take on fame than i think a lot of the stuff that we've gotten earlier in this series but i think this after you look at maybe i should save this comment to the end but now that i've said it i kind of have to say it it really looks like in this issue you get the idea that Anaki is targeting specific people yeah. for specific gods. Yes. So I think this is short of this is like the first example of this, but you'll see it more and more as the volume goes on. And so I mean like the the end result of this is like it all becomes too hard for her and at the end of the issue she basically uh commits suicide by Anaki. I guess it's pretty ambiguous as to whether or not she, if she's just like confessing, if she knows that Anaki can and will kill her, or if she's just like confessing her feelings to her and that provides an opening for Anaki to kill her. But, and then it ends with this like pretty chilling sequence where it's like a single page with like a, basically like a flame effect on the background with a screenshot of a tweet from a news site saying that Tara his body has been found in her London penthouse following a fire. And then over the next couple pages, more and more tweets fill up the page. And it's just like, it's really bleak and depressing. <laughs> like, well, portrait think... of the way that we interact with news about real 
about people's lives and deaths and like. But I think beforehand, it should be noted that when she's talking to Annika, she's looking at her iPad mm-hmm. and she starts reading these tweets that people are making about her. And some of them are really negative and they're very like shaming and they're saying like terrible things like you're selfish and you know, you're an awful person and it keeps like, it's sort of like cyber bullying. They're like making these comments like about Tara as a god as opposed to Tara as a human being. And that sort of makes her really upset and I think that's what provokes her to provoke Anaki to kill her. Yeah. Because then, like you said, then it ends up being this whole thing about how like she becomes like trending on Twitter because she died. Yeah, and you have people being like, oh no, and then you have people who are just like into the spectacle and they're just like, wow, that's crazy. She died. Bananas. Yeah. And then like people starting fights with each other in the Twitter threads about like who's being insensitive or not. And it's just like, ugh. Well, I think that's it. I mean, this like sort of exemplifies the concept that these gods are sort of like social media icons and they're like you know this is like a modern god a modern god is like you know a a big topic on twitter like where would people go to talk about things like that it would be like on social media and then yeah because then it ends up being almost like a mosaic because like the page is just filled with all like hundreds of little tiny tweets and all you see is the icons and it's just like really like this is what happens like this is how people share information, and this is how people communicate. But you really don't, like, learn a lot about, like, the god that she's supposed to be. Well, she doesn't even know. She brings that up, too, to Anaki. She's like, I don't know who I am. Like, which one am I? Um, and that does not get resolved before she dies. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like a sad like comment on like being an influencer and like the rise and fall of like an influencer career but i think a lot of this series is about like being a social media celebrity or being a celebrity for just being a celebrity yeah i mean it's also a um it's also about like how misogyny and the objectification of women hurt people there's like some stuff in this issue where she talks about how like how many times she's heard, like, you're beautiful, you're a goddess, be immediately followed by you fucking bitch when she, like, rejects somebody or is not, like, re- receptive to their advances? Well, I think, like, that's, like, some of the tweets, even her followers. Like, half the followers are vilifying her for being, like, superficial. And then when she tries to be deep, they're like, we don't want this, you know? Yeah. It's, I guess it's very complicated to, to be Tara. Yeah. So... So in the end, she's... See, I don't know. Does her death push this sort of plot line of these gods being murdered? I mean, yeah, that's another example of it. I guess it does sort of push it forward. But it's like a thing where we it pushes it forward, but we don't really learn anything further about it. We learn some, some stuff in the next issue, though. Yeah, so issue 14. This is the Odin issue. This one's McKelvey is back, but it uses a lot of... Um, recycled and recontextualized panels i think the conceit of this issue is that it's kind of like a uh like a video collage in comic book format i mean i think it's very literally from odin's perspective and i think a lot of this is supposed to be stuff he recorded from like his helmet and it all has the like uh 
Matthew Wilson, he's back on the colors, and he kind of goes buck wild on this issue. And there's lots of effects overlaid on everything, and everything is in these, like, harsh neon color palettes. Yeah, and I think you're supposed to get this sort of, um, get the impression that it's almost like some kind of, like, new style street influenced art that he's working on yeah, but I think maybe. we should talk about we didn't talk about the full the covers and how they're not oh yeah they're not the same it's not the headshots anymore yeah they're all like body shots and there's always a circle in the middle that has a different image inside so yeah. you see like Woden in his like yellow and blue like Tron suit Tron suit and then there's a circle and then you see like a black and white image highlights of his hands that are like kind of clenched in a fist but I think you, like you said this is the most revealing issue because you learn the most about like what Odin is doing and the role that he actually plays in the plot I mean he's essentially revealed in this to be Anaki's unwitting toady yeah, I can't tell if he's a cat's paw or if he's just... She's manipulating him. He's angry about it. She's holding something over his head. Some kind of secret about what he is. I think Which the is, secret... I think, is that he's not Odin. I think this... It has something to do with, like, his face. His f- something is up with his face. We don't see his face in this. I thought that this was going to end with us seeing his face. It does not. I don't... I mean, have you read the entire series? No, no, we talked about it. I okay. was reading it in issues... Up till the end of the, around the end of the previous volume, I think. And I haven't read anything past that. Okay, so there's no point in me asking if we actually ever see Odin. Yeah, I have no idea if we see his face or not. I assume we will, but... But yeah, I think you're right. I think this is supposed to be sort of um, a compilation of the things that have already happened from the point of view of Woden. So this issue opens with Woden... Remembering when he was shot by what is her name? Well, no, she doesn't actually shoot him. She just pulls a gun on him. Uh, Brunhilde. Brunhilde. I mean, they they say her actual name. I can't remember what it is now, but like she comes up again later in the volume. Yeah, and you can sort of see like it's kind of it's a different coloring. But then he's also thinking about like. The Norns and when they show up and then he's thinking about Tara's death and we kind of get this weird, like, once we learn, like... Carrie. That's her Carrie. name. Yeah. Oh, also I just wanted to say, in the, when we're talking about the, the style of this issue, we should note that the title of the issue is the Re-Remix. Right. The re-re-remix. Which makes sense, because you think if he's like a... He considers himself like a DJ, or like in that culture where... Yeah, I mean, he's at least supposed DJs to... DJs are stars. He's at least supposed to be a reference to... I mean, he's like the Scandinavian superstar DJ, because he's like a Norse god. He's got like a, a Daft Punk helmet, like... I don't... At the time that this was written... Were there DJs that wore those masks? Like, cause well, no, Daft Punk started in the 90s. So. No, I mean like, you know, like... Yeah, yeah, all that stuff's around. I mean, this would be this issue is twenty sixteen. It starts in twenty fourteen. All that stuff's been around. Okay, so that's sort of like a type of DJ celebrity sort of. Happening. Yeah, I mean, I think from the point of Daft Punk becoming popular, there were dudes who were like, "I'm going to be a DJ with helmet." I mean, I think around the time that this comic came out was uh, when the movie Popstar came out, and that has a whole bit in it where a character has like uncomfortably large. 
uh, identity destroying DJ helmet. <laughs> so you know. I think this is interesting because it's kind of it looks like it takes place in like someone imagining what a computer environment looked like in the sure. 90s because there's like lots of neon but it's all linear scan lines yeah and it has that sort of like what people think like a computer world was is going to be like and that's when we learn that he's actually working with Anaki or she's manipulating it's hard to tell so I mean I think she's I don't think it's hard to tell I think it's pretty explicit she's blackmailing him she's blackmailing him um but he just does, he does stuff for her. At her command, he builds things like Valhalla. He uh, is the one he you know went and softened up Cassandra and set up the interview at the behest of Anarchy. He knows that she uh, killed Lucifer, and he knows that she framed Lucifer for killing the judge. Anarchy did those things, not Cassandra. Yeah. And he, I guess he knows that she set up the shooting, even. Doesn't he, he talks about that in this, right? Yeah, I think what, I really like these, like, panels where he's talking to Cassandra in the background. This is sort of like, it's all red, but they're like woodcuts. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, she straight up says to him, as long as I know what I know about you, you'll obey. Yeah, so I guess that's it. And then the Norns, I guess he has some weird, complicated relationship with Cassandra and also with the Norns. And then, yeah, I guess. I mean, that's... Yeah, because he, when he starts, this is the part that really confuses me. He starts to re remember what happened with Lucifer in the courtroom and then sort of devolves in this like sexual fantasy that he's having between it's not a fantasy i think it's just what he does he hires people to he's a creep he hires people to dress up as amaterasu and <laughs> lucifer and he watches them have sex it's very strange because the other, the other thing is he's like a weird internet guy he's like a 4chan dude <laughs> and he like and in addition to being like this self-loathing robot DJ, he's also uh, yeah. It's it's a very strange. He says yeah, yeah. He's the one who engineers Ragnarok, like turns it into this big event, which then serves as the the stage for Baphomet's attempt to, attempt on uh, Cassandra's life. I'm trying to find the part where he talks about the. Uh, well, I think it's really interesting because when they showed Woden's transformation, it starts with him already wearing the mask. He do, yeah, because we don't actually see it. We see like his mask. Because if you'll notice, his his view of the transformation is very obviously like a dream sequence thing. It's not. It's him falling through a tunnel of his own heads with the helmet, not Anarchy's heads, and it, he's saying, uh, you are of the pantheon. You will not be loved. You will be hated. You should be hated. You are lying. You are living shit. Yeah, I think there's a lot of self-loathing in in whatever human being becomes Woden. Yeah. And that's not helping thing by Anarchy holding this over his head and making him help her with her secret schemes. She also says that uh, she says, strictly speaking, you are not repla irreplaceable, but it would be difficult, and I have larger problems to worry about. The situation has changed. There will be a war among the children. I must act more swiftly than I would normally risk. 
let us hope the dice are kind. And then he says, do you know what the, uh, a geeky part of me came to the fore and I thought, do you know what the singular of dice is? Die. That's interesting because later in this volume, um, there is a, an issue drawn by Layla DeLuca, Delu- Layla Del Duca, who is currently working on a comic with Kieran Gillen called Die that is about Dungeons and Dragons that is very specifically the title is a play on the singular version of Dice. Ah, interesting. So this one is kind of the secret origin of that comic, <laughs> I guess. I also like to, to bring it back to the first two volumes. There's a recurrence of the one, two, three, four alternative number and panel sequence that happens. But they're not, they're just sort of, they're red and green and white, and they sort of show the... This shows the deaths of God, so it's Lucifer, and it's two pages. On one page, it's one, Lucifer, two, Inanna, three, Terra, four, question mark, presumably Persephone, and then one, two, three, four, each of their deaths, and the fourth one being a question mark, presumably Persephone, would be Persephone's house on fire, if he was aware that she had become a god before her death. Yeah, and then after that, it returns to the style that we're used to seeing Woden in, which is the sort of very sort of graphical sort of drawings of him with like highlights on, you can see like a lot of like chrome and highlights, and there's these sort of faded like backgrounds. It gets away from that sort of frenetic like, like you said, with the scan lines and the sort of blurry um, backgrounds and these, like, neon tones. And that's sort of the end of the issue. Yeah, and uh, but he's talking to someone that we don't know who it is, and he says that uh, uh, there's one thing I'm sure of, I won't let her get you. And then this person says, after everything, of course you want, and it's another person wearing a helmet, but it's got, like, horns or like eyebrows kind of looks like an owl which is weird because there's like minerva and her symbol is an owl but i don't know if this is supposed to be her or not and we don't learn who this person is that he's talking to but you're sure that this isn't a valkyrie that he's talking well no because we see what that valkyrie we've seen what the valkyrie's outfits look like and it's not this and they don't have helmets um so this what does that mean there's another helmeted god or there's protecting someone I don't know. Which could explain... Like you said, if he's not actually Woden, then he might be protecting the actual Woden. We don't know. Uh, and some other things. There's that... In that sequence where he reveals his weird sexual proclivities, that's followed by this page where he goes, I can have everything, anything I ever wanted. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. It's all mine. Almost. And in that sequence, it's... I can have everything. And it's a picture of Amaterasu anything I ever wanted, and then it's the two women he's paying to have sex while he watches. Uh, This is mine. It's them again. This is mine. It's a picture of Lucifer. And then this is mine, and I'm not sure who this is. It's like a person's face. It's like a woman's face from, like, the nose to the neck. I think it's maybe supposed to be Carrie after she's injured. It might be Amaterasu, because the next panel where he says, this is mine, is a close-up of Amaterasu. Oh, it's, it's the woman who's dressed as Amaterasu. It's just a close-up, because you see a little bit of her makeup. Right. And then it's her eye. But then there's a blank panel in between It's All Mine and Almost. That's a black and white picture of Cassandra. 
Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. He has this weird relationship with Cassandra. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we talked about, like, I, I think the thing with... There's a part where we see part of her conversation and she thinks that he's... She, she thinks that he's winding up to ask her to be a Valkyrie. And he's like, yeah, you know, you almost hit the profile. But it, I think... Like we touched on it in the previous volume. I think the reason the Valkyries all... The reason she almost hits the profile is because I think all the Valkyries are him clumsily trying to get at her. And, like, getting people to pretend to be her, essentially, like he does with Amaterasu and Lucifer. He just doesn't realize that's what he's doing. What if Woden isn't a man? I don't know. What well, I Maybe. Because Cassandra... He seems like a dude... Like a, he seems like he has a very... Is he one of those creepy guys that hit on women that are not interested in men? Is, is he it? a chaser? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I mean, I think he is. But, like, I don't know. He he might not be. I feel like his, like, though he is fucked up in a very, uh, what feels to me like a very specifically masculine way. Oh, okay. But that might not be the case. And that's just because you're fucked up in a way that I associate with masculinity doesn't mean that you're a dude. So, I don't know. Um... But I feel like that's telling. Like you said, there's something going on. He has some kind of fixation on Cassandra that he doesn't even seem to be willing to fully acknowledge at this point. There, There's also this really funny part where he replays the fight that leads up to Lucifer's death, but he's, like, dubbing over everyone's dialogue with his shitty opinions of them. So, like, Ball is punching Lucifer and he's yelling, Violence! I am doing violence! I am very easily manipulated! I think he doesn't like Ball. I don't think he likes anybody because <laughs> Lucifer says I was too busy practicing my ennui and melodrama to ever get a clue. But hey, I look really good. <laughs> and then Sagma jumps in and says I also look good. And Lucifer says it'd be really terrible if an old lady came along and killed me. That would just be the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but I think like that's how people would like act. Like if they were home like by themselves, like looking at shit on the internet. Yeah. They would mm-hmm. have this like inner monologue where they just mock people. It's also interesting that, like, Woden is, like, he seems like he's an attention seeker, but he doesn't, like, do any of the things that the other gods do. Like, he doesn't do the performances and, like, the... Yeah. So, like, he's not looking for followers. He's, he's... like, very selective in, like, getting the Valkyries to... Yeah. Well, it seems like he, because of his attitude, would probably be pretty disgusted with and suspicious of anybody that would be willing to be his followers. Yeah. Also, the other, other important thing we learn is that the judge killing was not planned. Anarchy tells Woden that she was improvising when she did that. Mm-hmm. But I guess she was still trying to set up a scenario where she could kill Lucifer. I don't know. Um, Cassandra calls him evil in their conversation. He gives a really good... <laughs> he, not really good, but he gives an interesting take on the patriarchy. Where he's like... The patriarchy isn't ruled by men, it's ruled by fathers. Most men will never be fathers. They're just sons, and sons get sacrificed to keep the old man important cigars. That's part of why I feel like he's a dude. Also, I think that sort of says something about, like... He's talking about war there, too, because that lead-up to that is they're having a conversation, and he's like, uh, somebody asked me what time would you rather be a woman than a man, and he's like, uh, 1896 to 1900 in most of Europe. <laughs> But he's, so he's surprisingly woke? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but no, but he's like, he is, this term I don't think existed at the time. Or maybe maybe it existed by 2000, 2016, but probably not in 2014. Uh, he's blackpilled. He's like a nihilist. He, he understands 
thing. He's not like just like a dumb, dumb 4chan Nazi. He's like the insidious kind of guy that understands things, but is also just like, he's openly selfish. Like there's a part, like that's why she calls him evil at one point. She goes, you're not stupid, are you? Just evil. Because like he knows how what things are up and he knows when things are bad, but he just like wants his own shit and doesn't really care who gets hurt in the way. I can't really tell if you like Woden or if you don't like him. I think he's a really well. I mean, like he's a really interesting character because he's unlikable. He's a bad guy who's very well written, I think, and he's a specific kind of bad guy that you don't see a lot that definitely exists in the world. They're not the kind of bad guy that gets terribly far because they think they are too self-aware to really be like, like, Donald Trump is not this kind of dude. Donald Trump is not this smart. The kind of guy that's this smart largely doesn't end up rising beyond being like a forum moderator and an IT guy. (laughs) But that dude exists and he's bad. I guess that's it. I mean, I don't know if we have much more to say about this issue. I thought this one was really interesting, though. I like the artwork. I like the neon colors and the sort of glitchy, like throwback computer style and i like this sort of nod almost to like the four color like printing process Mm -hmm. which i think is really interesting and sort of kind of shows like the modern and the sort of it's very modern in a way that it calls back to like the past oh also i was wrong the next issue it's stephanie hans that's the person that does die oh okay uh so it is literally the next issue after that pun is brought up he does a comic with a person who will eventually do the art for the comic that has that title. Yeah, and this next issue is number 15, deals a lot, deals exclusively with the backstory of Amaterasu. Amaterasu. Uh, this is the most unclear, or like the most, um, not unclear, but like, I feel like we, we learn a fair amount, but there's the least amount of like concrete information. But I think that's the problem with her is that she's sort of very confusing because she's kind of like, she's like that sort of social media influencer kind of like Bonnaroo style yeah. who like skirts the line of like cultural appropriation all the time. And she's like kind of like including a lot of like different components of different cultural and religions and kind of like is slightly off-putting to anyone who is not a fan of her like she has like the flowing new age robes Mm -hmm. and she's sort of this nod to like uh shinto culture and she's kind of like got this sort of like hippie-ish vibe but still like kind of like you know she's very self-involved very sort of concerned about her own self but but at the same time putting out this thing like she cares and loves every single person well i think that that reveal and reveal of this issue is that that's actually the real part and that like that that's true and that because she looks like she doesn't like nobody believes her that she actually cares but i think also this is another this is one of the flaws that i find with this series at this point is that every single woman who becomes one of the gods has a terrible life. They're like, like she's being bullied in her school. And, you know, it's like... Haven't gotten the backstory on much of the dude gods. Woden seems to have a pretty bad life. We have no idea what Ball's backstory is, except he seems to at least believe that he was great before he became a god. I guess Inanna has a pretty mundane backstory. 
Okay. Yeah, but I mean, obviously they're not healthy. But why do the, all the women have to be like preyed upon? Yeah, like that. Well, it's not like, Lucifer. That's one. I'm just saying. I mean, we get in this book three backstories of three women who have like potentially like abusive or problematic childhoods. I think you're maybe being a little hard on the Morrigans' backstory. We'll talk about it. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I, I totally get that. I mean, I think that there's a lot of, like, art has a hard time in general, especially mainstream commercial art, with uh, the, I don't want to necessarily want to say fetishization, but maybe just the over-reliance on bringing dramatic possibility out of the suffering of women. The story opens with her, she's at some kind of, like, Japanese temple, and she gets a phone call and says that, like, is it Tara? opens with a flashback to her getting bullied at school. Yes. Well, that's what I was talking about. They're, they're, they're either getting bullied, objectified, or alienated, or they have very sickly childhoods. So she gets a call. And I guess, is this, are they talking about Tara who died? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah, because she burst into the hospital room and said, what happened to Tara? And then they're all standing there, Woden and Anaki and Ball and Sakamet and is that Dionysus? Yeah, yeah. And then of course Ball bl- immediately blames Tara's death on Baphomet. Yeah, he's real mad at Baphomet. He he's, seems to. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the opening with her getting bullied because uh, I'm she's holding this like white dog thing, this uh-huh. like stuffed animal that is Amaterasu. That's that is uh, presumably merch from this game called Okami, which is referenced at another point in this uh, in this volume. I can't remember if it's in this issue or not. But Okami is like a GameCube game. It kind of plays like Zelda, but you play as the god Amaterasu in the form of this white wolf. Well, that's what I think it is. I think it's sort of... It's implying that she doesn't see her connection to the Japanese religions... As cultural uh, appropriation, appropriation because all through her life she's had some kind of in her mind connection to Japanese culture. But also, I think the ending, the very end of this issue, I think calls into question whether or not she actually like whether or not her um, connection is bullshit or not. Well, yeah, there's that. Like it seems like it might be the real deal, considering what she. So, let's talk about what actually happens in this issue. So, she she shows up at the hospital. Um, Ball blames Baphomet. Uh, There's more intimations about this war between the the light gods and the dark gods. You know, the underworld and sky gods. Uh, Dionysus doesn't want any part of it. Of course not. And he's like, you know, I left my congregation mid dance for that's more important to me than this like petty infighting between us. Uh, he gets in a fight with Odin, calls him a hypocrite, and don't pretend she was anything other than hot meat to you, is what he yells at him, which is pretty mean. <laughs> well, I think that's just him being like himself. He, he's also like talks about how he was like friends with Baphomet. Like Baphomet shows up at that party in that one issue, and so it's like, okay, they're like homies. Were they homies before he becomes Baphomet, or are they homies while he's Baphomet? I think while he's Baphomet. Okay, okay. He was also one of the guys at the Morrigan performance thing where Baphomet shows up with the fake severed head. Yes. 
So then we also learn that at the same hospital where Tara's body was taken, uh, Carrie is there recuperating and Minerva is sitting with her. Yeah, and so she was the one that injured her. She's sort of racked with guilt. We also get a brief, like, insert shot flashback of her as a kid, like, I think, I guess as a kid, or at least before she becomes a god, looking at someone who is in a hospital bed with a sheet over them, which by the end of the issue we learn is presumably her father. Right. And then, yeah, so she checks in on on Carrie. Uh, Beth and her cronies are there, too. Uh, Beth reveals that she wasn't allowed to see uh, Tara. We get another shot of her, like, as a kid in her school uniform, looking under the the sheet. And she says that was probably for the best. So she's like, that must have, that must have been pretty traumatic for her to see this dead person, presumably her father. And then the Norns show up. Yeah, and they're real assholes. Yeah. And that becomes, like, the bulk of this issue is the conflict between Cassandra and Amaterasu. So Cassandra calls her, basically calls her out for being, for cultural appropriation. She's, uh, you know, has Japanese heritage, and she takes umbrage with Amaterasu's whole act. They get in a fight. There's one point where I think the funniest part of this issue is... Where um, she gets all, Amaterasu gets all indignant and is like flying up in the sky and she likes this like big sunburst. And, uh, oh, that's the thing. They get in the fight about cultural appropriation and show her to like dunk on her. Cassandra teleports her to Hiroshima. Or she does? I think she teleports her to Hiroshima because she she was in Japan and she teleported herself to London. So yeah. I think she's the one with the teleportation, teleportation powers. Yeah, so yeah. She's and then a... she calls her out for making a giant sunburst in the sky over Hiroshima. Yeah, they're arguing and she's like, uh, have you even been to Japan? And she's like, just, you think, it's very problematic that you think that and someone, anyone with Japanese heritage would have the money to just be able to go to Japan. So then she teleports her there and they're fighting and she flies into the sky and makes this big sunburst. And Cassandra says, you are you are a literal artificial sun above Hiroshima. Are you even aware of how offensive this is? Yeah. And this feels like... So, you know, we talked before um, in comic, when we've discussed comics in general. I think specifically we talked about it uh, when we were covering Destroyer. About this thing that I like that like superhero comics can do. Uh, which I think is like the main value of them as an art form is to take um, real conflicts that exist in society or internally within people or just like in the realm of philosophy and blowing them up to massive proportions so that they're uh, literalized as two dudes punching each other. And it's a a way to like experience catharsis and to work through uh, these conflicts in a different space. Um, And this feels like it's doing that before an internet argument. Like, yeah. this is, like, a Twitter argument. This is Cassandra trying to cancel Amaterasu. For being a cultural appropriate. Yeah, as portrayed as a superhero fight, which I think is really fun. I like that a lot. I think it's also interesting that Cassandra calls her by her human name. Yeah. So it kind of, like, gives this hint that maybe she knows her from before. But this is the question I had. Or she just, like, found out because she's a reporter. Also, now she's all-knowing, so... So when Anaki finds the person that she wants to bring into the Pantheon, does the person's traits influence who they are, or does she pick them because of 
of the god that she wants him to be. I mean, that's like the, I think one of the central mysteries. It's like, is she picking them and making them into the god? Does she get to determine what god they are? Is she just awakening the the divine soul waiting inside of them? Like, it's unclear, I think. I think that's part of, like, one of the main questions we have here. And I don't know. Because, I mean, like, she could have picked someone of Japanese descendant to be this god, but she picks a white girl who thinks that she's... Yeah. And she's has, an, like, an interest in Japanese culture. I be- I'm imagining that the reveal is going to be that her late father is, like, her stepfather or adopted father, and he was actually Japanese. Yeah, because, I mean, after they have this huge fight, and she says, you know, I'm... I'm Amaterasu, and then the, the, you're an artificial son of Russian. Yeah. But then, that phrasing, like, the, this is what you're doing, do you even know how offensive that is, is, like, exactly how people talk on the internet. But I think that Cassandra, she really is, like, she's, like, how people who don't care about social justice describe social justice warriors. Like, she's that kind of, like, she, I mean, she had picks fights with everyone because she thinks everyone is wrong. Yeah, in I, her de- in their depiction of anything. I don't. I think that's true, but I I don't think she really is that though because she's she's always strikes me more as like the salty academic, right? Yeah. Like she probably doesn't even really care all that much, but she's picking the fight because she intellectually knows that she can win the fight. But I mean, she picks a fight with Lara. She picks a fight with like. Woden, she picks a fight. Like every person that she comes in contact with, she's always like, "You're wrong," and here's sixty five reasons why. Yeah, that's what I mean when I say that she's like the salty academic <laughs> more than I think she is like the stereotype of the social justice warrior. But I mean, so after the fight, they're like exhausted, and then they're laying on the ground, and then they have like a heart to heart, and then she ends up just like jetting away and leaving her like in japan it's kind of like a good like that's like a good oh wait so we do find out that they do know each other from pre uh godhood she read her blog and like they knew each other from the internet yeah uh and then also that anana and lucifer read her blog well the whole thing is is like they're all influencers and all influencers even if they don't admit it they are concerned about other influencers and what they get and what they how popular how successful they are yeah she also reveals that that hazel the name that cassandra keeps calling her isn't even her real name that's the name she was going through a wiccan druidy phase yes of course but it's kind of like calling her out for like all of her like every interest that she has where she's on this path to try to figure out, you know, to learn more about herself or whatever. Yeah, and then we had two panels that are, so I think, supposed to highlight the major differences between these two characters, which is, uh, Amaterasu says everything happens for a reason, and Cassandra says nothing happens for a reason. (laughs) Which puts her much more in line with Wooden's way of thinking. So it's almost like they have, I don't know if they reconcile, but they have an understanding that kind of, is like a resolution until she kind of goes her and leaves her in Japan, and then Cassandra's or Erder, yeah, is very upset that she's left there. And then it cuts to Amaratsu going to 
Tokyo, and this is where you sort of really get maybe that there that it's not cultural appropriation. Maybe there's something more complex going on. Well, yeah, but I'm thinking it could also be like she was saying, like you're judging me on my appearance that mm-hmm. I don't fit the culture that I claim to be from. That's you judging me for not fitting yeah. the stereotype of what you think I should be. Yeah, so she shows, it ends with her showing up at the shrine um, and then praying to her father to help basically every character in the book. Um, and that's the end of that issue. What did you think of the art style? Uh, I liked it. I thought it was cool. It's like very... Um, like it's there's a lot of usage uh which fitting for the a comic about a sun god there's like a lot of interesting use of light in this lots of like bright light sources and sort of washed out colors from the presence of these intense lights which i think was a pretty cool effect yeah and i think i like the way that the art sort of mimicked the style of what amaratsu was about these sort of like you said, this sort of flowing, kind of organic, like, sun god, almost. Which I thought was interesting. I thought it was really nice and very sophisticated that it was an issue about Japanese culture, but it didn't... Like, have like, a manga style? Yes, and I thought... And, that, and also didn't sort of, like, pepper it with, like, references to kind of, like, heavy-handedly kind of make people... I mean, there was some reference. There was the Okami thing, but really, that, that was pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so then we can get to... Uh... I thought it had the most realistic art style. Yeah, it was very grounded, but not... not. I mean, when the action is happening and stuff, like some of the staging was very stylized, but the rendering was, was pretty uh, naturalistic. I also liked the depiction of Erder and Amaratsu and how they were sort of... It was heightened, their sort of difference, their style, or like... Her blacks were very black, very saturated, and Maratsu's reds and oranges were very, also very saturated. So you sort of really got that like clash between light and dark. And I think like Cassandra really comes off a lot of times as pessimistic, so she really seems like a dark character. I can't yeah. really tell what her thing is. What do you mean her thing? Like. She seems just, she's just so judgy, I guess. I mean, I think that's her thing. <laughs> her thing is judgy. Yeah, we've talked before, but that she's like the, you know, well, she was into it before it was cool. Yeah. She has this thing of like not feeling it, you know, like she, she's, she seems like a very unhappy person. I think it's a different, but it, but it's not, it's different from the Woden thing where it's tempered by this like intense self-loathing. I don't necessarily get that vibe off of her. Maybe we'll get a later issue that's more from her perspective. Where that'll be filled in, but I think it's also interesting that like the Norns are three entities, but they don't really work together. Like the the rest of the Norns are sort of like the backup to Cassandra. Yeah. Like with the Morrigan, they're like integrated, and they're basically almost like versions of the same thing. Like the three, like the triple goddess, but like Cassandra's like her own thing, and like even when she's fighting with Amaratsu, like the other Norns are sort of just on the ground they're just like hanging about they're not they don't work with cassandra they're sort of just like her support staff and i think you really get that when you see like 
before she's transformed, she's like really awful to her like employees, and I think that carries on. Uh, yeah. Do you want to move on to the next issue? Yeah. Uh, this is sixteen, right? Yeah, and this is Layla De- Del Duca. Yeah. She uh, she's worked on some image stuff, um, Shutter, uh, Sleepless. She did a Wonder Woman graphic novel recently called Tempest Toss. I forget who wrote that. Uh, yeah, she's she's got a, like this is maybe the most 2016 looking issue of them all. Like she's got a, a art style that I sort of heavily associate with that kind of like 2014 to 2016 era of like new comics, which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's like dated or anything, but like there, you know, that's just what I associate it with. Uh, it's again like another very like clean line sort of style. Uh, it looks for the, the most, most like part. a comic strip. Like it's very flat, common. Like, there's... I mean, when it flips back to, like, the backstory of the Morrigan, like, it's kind of more rich. But when they're in the um, room where the Morrigan is being kept and they're trying... And Minerva and Ball are talking to her, it definitely has, like, this sort of flat kind of background. And the women have, like, big puppy hair. Well, not just them. Um, has got some floppy hair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was very, like, I think the thing is, the thing that makes it feel comic strip-y, which I, you want to say is not, I don't think, that's not an insult, right? I'm, or is that a criticism? No. Is, like, she has very um, deliberate and exaggerated facial expressions. Exactly. Also, I think you get this sort of, um, I mean, I don't know a lot about comics, and it's probably a very unpopular thing that I'm just about to say, so don't, like, chew my head off, Nate. But it looks like when you use computers to do things, but then you try to make it not look like you used a computer to do it. I guess I could see that, yeah. Um, and, like, also, like, her depiction of, like, again, what is her? Cameron. That's the human name of Baphomet in the yeah. backstory. He kind of looks like, kind of like a Sandman character. Uh, yeah, there's a part in particular where he's, like, smoking at a funeral, or he looks very Sandman-y. Um, but they're definitely, it's like, what is the Morgan's name? The Morgan's name is... Lauren? Laurel? Uh, Marion? Marion, that's right. Yeah. He's Cameron, she's Marion. So this, like, <laughs> so we get uh, this opening where Ball is going to take some food to the Morgan who is being imprisoned in this, like electric bird cage yes. that it's great I <laughs> presumably love it. Woden made yes of course and it's got like a lighted floor and she's like laying on the lighted floor in her like goth gown and shifting between her different forms and that's uh, like a very Woden thing to make this like even the cage it yeah, makes for... it looks like something from a music video right and it looks and like it's so, like solely made to like objectify the Morgan like she has to lounge in a seductive way in this cage because there's no other way for her it's to... also no furniture in it yes, which seems exactly. pretty cruel um, but it also matches the aesthetic of Valhalla which is also all like white and glowy um, we get a little taste of like Ball and Minerva's relationship which is a very like big sibling little sibling sort of thing where she kind of pesters him into letting her accompany him to give the Morrigan her food. So what are they doing? Like, it starts out with, like, them. They're, like, 
I don't know. They're like early. Oh, I, I know. I, okay. Yeah. See, this is the thing. What they're doing is a vampire the masquerade LARP. Okay. They use some very specific terms. I mentioned Toreador, which is one of the clans in Vampire the Masquerade. You, if people who don't know, in the 90s, around the same time, I mean, very much in the same sort of cultural moment as the Sandman, uh, Vampire the Masquerade rose to prominence. It's a tabletop role-playing game where you play as vampires. Huge hit with goths. Um, a big part of the like mainstreaming of goth culture in the same way, I would put it in the same category as the Sandman and Nine Inch Nails and stuff like that. Uh, and it has a big LARP scene that I think continues to this day. It has its own specific rules for LARPing, which are called Mind's Eye Theater. And it has this um, reputation that Vampire the Masquerade LARPs are goths standing around smoking and arguing about internal vampire politics. And so that's exactly And then what making out. That's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. In in the opening scene of that. Yeah, yeah. I knew I was gonna have to explain that. Well when I got that I was like, my mom is not gonna have any clue what this is. <laughs> but yeah, so they're like in some cave or some catacombs with a bunch of candles and Marion is being very dramatic and there's another guy there and uh Cameron's being kind of the shitty above it all boyfriend who basically um, dumps on the whole of proceedings until the other guy leaves, and then they uh, start going at it in this cave. Yeah, and then they have this very kind of specific fight about, like, painting their miniatures. Yeah, so they're like, she, she at is, least... is more into she it. She is a tabletop role-playing nerd, and he is involved with her, but is maybe not so into this hobby. And then his parents get, there's an accident and both of his parents die. And then it cuts to a scene where they're at a funeral. And then he starts to have this sort of existential crisis dealing with his parents. This is also a very deliberate panel of them in the, at the church at the funeral that is, I think, a pretty clear reference to the ending of The Graduate. I also thought that it kind of really took a nod to like the American Gothic, the sort of Edward Hopper painting. But they're like seated, and she's like looking sideways at him, and so like a lot of this issue is about their relationship and like how his kind of uh, slide into this like performative nihilism in the wake of his parents' death puts a strain on their relationship and so this serves to contextualize his whole deal with trying to steal more time like he's torn apart by his parents death and he's now utterly terrified of dying yeah and then he's then their relationship starts to suffer because it's like he kind of has a problem with now that this kind of concept that now he's on his own and he has to act like an adult. Mm-hmm. And Marion sort of, even despite the fact that she tried to come off as like also like very goth and very uncaring or whatever, she spends a lot of emotional energy keeping this relationship alive. And then they have a scene where he reveals that he had he had sex with another woman. And she sort of blows her gasket. And then he flicks a cigarette into a trash can and it catches on fire. And there's a sequence where they have to put it out. Uh, And then she storms off into a cemetery and meets Anaki and becomes the Morrigan. Yeah, and it's kind of like she... I can see why she was selected to be the Morrigan. She she also talks in 
previously about an experience where she, as a child she was very sick and she was like on her deathbed. Oh, I forgot about that when you were talking about people's backstories before. Yeah. So she tries to connect with him in that way about the, the death thing. And then she run, runs into Anakin who turns her into the Morrigan. And then her sort of like, that's the only one that doesn't sort of, her transformation is not a tube. It's kind of like a spiral of like, and then. Well, I mean, we just don't see the part where she's falling. She disappears and then reappears in a spiral of crows. Presumably somewhere in there was the part where she was falling through the tunnel with the Anaki heads yelling at her. But they just don't show us it this time, which is fine because we've seen it so many times before. Yeah, and I think this is sort of this sort of harkens back to when we first saw the Morgan. There's a part where all of the people are going into the tunnel for a rave, and Cameron is there, and the Morgan is already transformed, and he just goes to her rave. Well, yeah, you know, he um, waits there after he goes there for her performance. And then he's, like, moved by it. He sees her. He realizes it's her. And he stays and, like, praises her. Uh, they have this, like, argument. Not argument, but, like, he's, like, praising her. And she's mad about the idea that, like, you know, she he kind of ruined their relationship right before this happened. I think this is the next part is the most shocking twist. of, But it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Where... You, the Morgan goes to Anaki and asks her to transform Cameron into a god. Yeah. So that they can stay together. Mm-hmm. Which I think is interesting because it shows that he sort of was unwilling, and even more unwilling than the usual unwillingness, because he had no idea, you know, that he, he was targeted. Well, it's, again, like, functionally, it's not any different than anyone else, because they all were. But this does complicate the things about, like, whether or not people are being picked, how exactly they end up being which gods. Because it seems like this seems to indicate that Anaki can just do it if she wants to, to whoever. But I think this solves the question that we had in the first issue, is that why was there no previous Baphomet? Yeah. You had brought that up. Apparently there was no previous Baphomet because... There was no need for one until the Morgan asked for Cameron to be transferred. Well, yeah, see, that's the thing that complicates it. It's like, can she just pick whoever she wants and make them into them? Or is he, like, special thing? Because Baphomet is an artificial, quote-unquote, deity, is he an artificial version of whatever the Pantheon is and thus different from the rest of them? Or is this how they all work? I don't know. So do you have, like, the spark of a god inside your personality? And she picks people that she thinks will transform into the gods that she wants? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, yeah. And then... Uh... So then, this is also one of my favorite things. She she gets her... Minerva delivers her lunch and she wanted a falafel. Yeah. And she ends up getting a hamburger. And the hamburger has like a pentagram on it. And then it pops up and it's like... A ketchup baphomet, and he's like, I can explain, which is like something like you would say, like if you really fucked up in your relationship yeah. and you want to sort of get that door open so you can try to weasel your way back in. And he was like, he's like, I swear, Mary, and I, I can explain every single thing. And he's kind of like, he's got his hands up. Uh, yeah. But then we know from the ending of the first issue in this volume that he's maybe does not have the purest of intentions at this point in regards to her, and it's also like. 
their relationship is revealed to be much more fucked up because he is terrified of dying and she asked for him to become a god of death. Well, and the to, and she essentially capped his lifespan at two years against his will. Yeah, and I think like she doesn't actually ever like, but I think she she is doing something that she thinks may be in his best interest. Yeah, yeah, well, it's complicated. But, but that's for I I like that I like that twist because like that makes a lot of sense about their like Baphomet and Morgan's relationship mm-hmm. because they seem like they're like a mated pair. Yeah. And now we know why. But then also he's very... He's still having his, like, conflicted nihilist breakdown, his existential mm. breakdown, as one of the gods. Yeah. And I think that explains... It doesn't fix him. She she does it to help him or whatever, or to help herself, and it doesn't... It makes it just makes the problem that he was already having worse. And I think that explains why he's so concerned with extending his life. Yeah. So. I mean, look, I'll tell you right now, like... uh. You know, my dad died when I was a teenager. And, like, you, once that, like, germ gets in there, you don't ever stop thinking about death. Yes, exactly. Whether or not you're, like, terrified of it enough to murder gods is one thing. But, like, once the germ is in you, like, it doesn't go away. But I also think, I mean, he's more into, he might be, he might have been with Marion because of, like, some type of inertia. Because, like, at the point where he tells her that he had sex with another woman, she's dressed in her goth outfit, and he's not. He's just wearing, like, a t-shirt. Yeah, and he's got, like, a yellow jacket on, like, something, obviously, like, a goth would not put on. So I think he he's kind of, like, if anyone is, like, the most... He's just wearing, like, a trench coat. He's wearing a tan trench coat and a black t-shirt. He's wearing, like, a goth-y outfit, but he's not dressed like a goth. Yeah, but she has like the net like shirt and you know like the yeah she's wearing choker like a, and yeah so she's got like the she's wearing like a tunic with tights and big tall boots yeah uh, but also when he sees her as like the Morgan like when they're reconciling I guess he tells her that she was always the best at the game yeah uh, oh because she's like she's like pretty much living like yeah she stayed she stayed larping she got to larp forever forever that's what being a god is to her i guess but i liked it i mean i like the issue i like that sort of like that's the thing that pushes the plot i guess further along well that's one of them yeah yeah and i like the sort of sparse sort of goth colors the black and white yeah this was like the very like you know judicious use of like different colors this was like the least intense coloring job that any of these issues have had so far like this is basically none excepting that beginning part in valhalla this has like none of the like bright neon colors it's again much more um you know it's much less stylized than the coloring job in all the other issues which is a nice change of pace there's a little bit of that though when morgan shows up she's her wings are sort of wreathed in neon green yeah but i think the morgan is a very complicated well, she's literally like three people too, on top yeah. of everything else. Uh, do you want to move on to the next issue? Yeah. So this is for cat fans, I guess. Yeah. So this is the Sackman issue. The artist by Brandon Graham. I guess let's look at it out of the way. Brandon Graham does not have the best reputation in comics right now. Uh, he's kind of a woke, <laughs> as it were. Um, he, he just like what was it? He, he got like called out for being kind of like a shitty toxic dude and being sort of a chaser 
or just being a chaser. He didn't handle it well. He wrote a weird diss track comic strip about the person who called him out. And, like, he just has, like, a pretty crummy reputation at this point. But all of this predates that. This predates that. This is, like, a... Like two, like maybe it might be like two, even even two years before that. So he did not have that reputation at this point. And I was a big fan of his when this issue came out. Um, and and I think this issue looks great. Yeah, it's very. This is maybe the most different. It's a very modern style of artwork. He's, he's got a very like Euro comics influenced style here, but it was a little bit of like manga uh, thrown in. It's um, you know, there's that. Uh, triangle pyramid chart that's that's it looks like the um we have mcdonald's at home chart but it's from understanding comics where it's like a, you know you have a photograph on one end and like a smiley face on the other representing like this spectrum of abstraction and of all the stuff we've read in the wicked and divine this is the maybe even all the stuff we've read from any of the comics we've done this is the furthest towards the abstraction end of the spectrum that we've seen yeah, because it's, I mean, it kind of really looks very cartoony. Yeah. There's not a lot of shadows. There's not a lot of, like, shading in the colors. All of the colors are flat, sort of. Yeah. Um, and so this whole issue is told from, it's also got, like, a very, uh, kind of, like, washed out, almost like pastel sort of color palette, uh, which is different from anything else that we've seen so far. I like this. So it's, it's. Sakamet is sort of like going through her day. Yeah. And she starts the morning, like after like this sort of very hedonistic. She's a very hedonistic god. Yeah. I mean, she's like a cat. She's impulsive and in the moment, and she cares almost entirely about her own uh, comfort and desires. We get like a little bit of her. Uh, she definitely has like a Santi Gold kind of style. Oh yeah, aesthetically. Got a half-shaved yes. head, blonde hair. You know, very sort of, kind of like her clothing style is very sparse, very tight, very sort of modern. Yeah. So she ends up like she's living in Valhalla. And she ends up at this like sort of orgy, and then one of the Valkyries is like, "You have to get up. It's time to get up. You have to start training." And she's like, "No." And then. <laughs> I don't know if this is actually Ball or, like, her, like, imagining, but he's, like, fighting all these robots. I think that's him training. He's, he's like, fighting he's robots. He's got no like, shirt on, and he's got, like, tight pants on, and, and she's, like, eating, like, Doritos and saying how bored she is. Yeah. Well, we get this before that. The opening is her as a kid at the British Museum looking at a statue of Sackman, and... She's moved by it, and her, like, friend or classmate is like, she looks sad. And Sack- and the girl who will become Sackman says, don't be stupid, she's not sad, she's made of stone, she doesn't feel anything. Which becomes like, we don't get a definitively exactly what happened with her past, but she's clearly experienced something pretty bad relating to her dad, at least. And she sort of does not want to feel things. Right, and I think that sort of plays out very clearly later on and what she ends up doing. So she's at this point she's doing some kind of interview. The Valkyrie is supposed to be her minder mm. and she's doing an interview and she decides she wants to wants a drink and she sort of wanders off just like a cat and she ends up going into London and she starts having like this idea that she wants to 
eat someone. Yeah, we get a little another little flashback of her pre-transformation, her talking to Anarchy, and she's like, um, they're talking about cat people and dog people, and and Sagman says cats don't give a fuck, and she's like, dogs are how we. Anarchy says dogs are how we truly are. Cats are how we wish to be. Which would you rather be, Ruth? And then we get the next, like under that is a panel of her as Sagman. So the the answer is clear. But I think it's like this is what I was talking about, like. You don't really get a lot of her backstory, but you see her like sitting on a bus stop mm-hmm. and she's got a giant backpack and she's all bundled up and she's got a bottle of like... Yeah, she's drinking something that she has to cover with a paper bag, right. indicating what it probably is. So it's like you get this sort of impression that she's either down on her luck or she's homeless or there's some kind of problem and that like Anarchy is almost like preying on her. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's becoming clearer and clearer that that's what she does. Yeah. Um, and then we get a black page, which I thought was maybe a, a glitch, and I had to look at the the comic from another source. But no, it's just a black page. Uh, and then um, she's got blood on her face, and Woden and the Valkyries show up, and Sagman says, someone said he was a bad dad. Wrong. He was delicious, and there's just fucking blood everywhere. But is that her dad, or just a, ja- a dad in general? Unclear. Un- ambiguous, maybe. I also like the way that she depicts like Woden like he's kind of like goofy and like he's rubbery well, no he's literally that's a specific reference because he's doing the uh John Lennon invented walking pose <laughs> there's that picture of John Lennon walking in a weird way and Woden is positioned he's walking into this murder scene in that manner. But then also the Valkyries have giant swords. Like, it's kind of like... He, I, yeah. The same way she depicted Ball as being like very masculine and fighting this robot. He, Brandon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, there's like... In, in some of the stuff, there's a clear, like, anime, video game sort of influence. Which makes sense for Woden and the stuff that he builds. I mean, he, zoomed, he built those swords. They have... They're also, like... It's a weird, interesting detail that they have, like, lights around the hilt... Like, there's, like, a circle of light. That's just, like, the only... The only light source in this room are that and then a light on Woden's chest. Yeah, and I think that's why it kind of captures her. It's, like, one of those things, like, in a like in a noir film, like, mm-hmm. where you get, like, a spotlight or a light shines in from the, like, outside and you see the crime scene. Yeah. Because, like, she's, like, scantily clad, of course, and, and she's devoured someone. And then Woden chews out one of the Valkyries for letting her wander off and it turns out that Sacramento is more dangerous when she's sober than when she is drunk which mm-hmm. is why they always try to keep her drunk yeah she talks a little bit more about not feeling things she says i'm not angry don't get angry anymore don't feel anything bad anymore i am Sacramento. i just want to eat some people i like when the, the next scene is she's back at valhalla and she's guarding the morgan and she's like well Rolling around on the floor, drinking wine. It's like a bunch of cats. With all of her, like, weird cats who have, like, disgruntled looks on their faces. Yeah. And then the Morgan's like, you're a terrible... Well, she's basically like, we're both in in chains, like, you in in bars or whatever, but I know how to break my cage, and you don't even know that you're in one. Right. Like, again, like, drawing this comparison between her and, like, a house cat. Like, a house cat is... Yeah, house cats don't give a fuck, and they don't care, and they... Whatever. But, like, they're stuck in the house. Like, they're not... They're not a lion. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, this is like sort of a really sad issue because I, like, I feel bad for Sacramento, yeah. but I don't know why. 
Like, well, yeah. she seems like herself, like, she's content with her own self, but it seems like she's a very sad. You know, I mean, I like that idea of, like, I feel this person's story makes me sad even though they're not sad or at least claim not to not be sad. Yeah, and then, of course, like, there's the giant cliffhanger for the next <laughs> we'll issue. Literally shout it out as the inevitable cliffhanger. Yes. Uh, which is that someone is booking a gig for Persephone. Yeah, and he kind of says, like, are you that person or are you not that person? Because I'm going to have to, like, have a way to differentiate you from that other person. And then he says, I'll call you UK. Yeah, because it sounds like he's talking to a man because he calls him me. Yeah, I mean, maybe she's got a manager. Maybe that's the... The person in the helmet that Woden is talking to. Maybe. Could is be. Persephone. I don't know. Um, yeah, he says... Uh, what does he say? He says, yes, me. Yeah. No, he, that's the guy... No, no. He's not on the phone anymore. He's talking to the guy at the bar. Because this is at a bar that someone's booking the thing. So I think he's done with the phone conversation. He's put down the notebook with the thing. Uh, he says, yes, mate, same again, presumably taking someone's order at the bar. Oh, okay. Okay, so it could be Persephone herself. Yeah, the gender of the person he's talking to, still unclear. Could be Persephone herself. Yeah. And that's basically the end of the volume. There's a couple of one-page stories that I guess were backups that uh, McKelvey did to maintain his presence in the book during his absence. Which he calls video games. Yeah, because they're supposed all supposed to be recorded. They're all involved video, so these are some video games. Uh, the first one's in Nana, like talking to a documentary crew about how, uh, you know, he's kind of the opposite of Sackman. He's like way into caring about stuff, uh, and he says, "My regrets are the one thing I don't regret." Next question, please. Yeah, it seems like it's very prince-like. So. Yes, definitely. Uh, and we get one with Tara, where... She's on the runway of yeah, some sort. Yeah, she's being recorded by paparazzi. They're trying to ask her some questions. Um, they basically ask her a bunch of intrusive questions about her appearance, whether or not she got plastic surgery. They bring out the old urban legend about some celebrity, be it Iggy Pop or Rod Stewart, getting their rib removed. Um, which I guess in this context has a sort of more biblical yeah. ring to it than it usually does when it's presented. But she just kind of blows them off and they're like, oh, fucking Tara. Which is like a re- repeated refrain in the issue about her. Mm-hmm. Like that is the shorthand for how people are dismissive of her when she doesn't conform to their desires. And then we get one with the Valkyries and Amaterasu like hanging out. Um, she... <laughs> Is showing off this ring that Woden gave her that belonged to the previous Amaterasu. We learn in Woden's issue that this is a surveillance device that he has smuggled onto her person because he is a creepo. Um, this Valkyrie calls him a pervert and that he's insecure and all the girls hate him. Uh, and then it turns out that they're being filmed by someone who's streaming it and she freaks out. And we get like a panel of her about to punch him with like a light up fist and then stream disconnected. <laughs> and then the last one, I don't super understand it's so it's like three dudes standing outside of the strand station and he they've got a video i guess is, is this of the morrigan um yeah I, I think it is and and there's like a video where the guy's like oh she was amazing 
And she's like, well, we're finished for the next... I will summon you for the next audience. Be gone. And they're like, quick, get a, get a shot of her. And then when they should have turned the camera on her, instead it cuts into this picture of someone in a hospital bed. And they're confused. And I get, is that supposed to be like they... She accidentally projected an image from her past in? Is that supposed to be her when she was sickly and almost died? I don't know. I thought it was sort of like maybe the future of one of them, like she was going to beat them all up. Maybe. I don't know. Unclear. Like I said, that's the one I understood the least. Um, and that's that's it as far as story in this volume. We get a bunch of variant covers. Uh, some are stronger than others. A lot of them are by the artists that worked on the issue. I like the Sacrament one a lot. Um, there's one apparently by Grimes? Yeah, she does like an alternative cover, cover variant for one of the issues. Sally Skull's on it, I don't think it's very good. No. Uh, and she has revealed herself to be uh, not great. So, <laughs> that's cool. Uh, and then just sort of more process stuff and the end of the back matter sketches and some samples of scripts. And that is the end of uh, volume three. What one was your favorite story? Hmm, my favorite, my favorite story was probably um I don't know probably the Sackment one but I, I think my favorite issue though overall is the I, the Woden one just because it had the most stuff to puzzle over and I think presented some of the most complex characterization yeah I think so I, I would say that too I didn't know the backstory about the problematic artist but I did like that yeah I mean you know people are some people suck and then but they're still good at drawing and eh, whatever like i said that all that stuff happened before that i don't you know i, I just wanted for people to i don't know you know i just wanted to get that out there in case the conversation comes up in the wake of this i like that there were more backstories because i don't think the main plot points allow for like getting in-depth backstory yeah well the plot was moving so fast in those first two volumes and i think it was kind of hard so i did appreciate this breather to sort of flesh out a lot of these characters i hope we will get and i assume we will one of these style of issues for ball at some point because he's the one that i'm the most curious about at this point he's the one we've seen very little beyond the facade that he presents in, yeah. Which for every other character, we've sort of gone beyond that. The most we've gone beyond Ball's facade is just him being sad and upset about Anana. So I think the next... Like well, Minerva, we actually know definitively the least about. But that's part of why I'm not as curious, because I haven't gotten as much of a... We haven't gotten it as teased as much yet. So the next volume, presumably, will pick back up on the larger plot point. I believe so, Yes. Which will be good. I'm, I'm interested. I, I would be down if this was the pattern. If it was like big plot event, then breather volume to flesh out characters. I mean, Sandman kind of did that a little bit, where it was like big. Long, they would sort of almost alternate the big long story arc volumes with the uh, collections of the the short stories and stuff. And I, I like that uh, rhythm to a comic series, especially something that's got so much sort of mythology and world building stuff in it as this one but yeah so like now we, we're going into the next volume we know what happened with the the mystery in the first volume with uh lucifer and the the judge murder and stuff we know what happened but we still don't know why which i think is a good way to like to deliver information without just like 
blowing your load as to the major reveals of the series too early. Yeah, and I'm kind of I'm now I'm even more curious to find out more about Woden. Yeah, me too. So I think that should be interesting. All right. So um, what are we what do we have next? We have uh, volume four. Yeah. So next month we're going to do volume four. Uh, that'll be our comic for the month, and then so that's our next novella episode, which I guess is our next episode, right? Is going to be our fiftieth episode. Very so special episode. Go and read something from 50 years ago. And so we're going to read The Fantastic Mr. Fox by Ralph Dahl. Because as evidenced in this episode, we love qualifying our enjoyment of an artist's work based on their actions and attitudes. <laughs> uh, but we're also going to, I think, try and uh, rewatch the movie. So we'll talk about the movie, too, you know, on its own and as it uh, compares and contrasts to the book itself. I was very surprised to realize that book was 50 years old. Did you think it was older or younger? I thought it was younger than that. Oh, okay. I don't, for some reason in my mind, I guess because I didn't read Roald Dahl as a child, I think of him more as being written at the time of your childhood. Well, yeah. I read a ton of Roald Dahl stuff as a kid. He was one of my favorite authors as a kid. I totally get that. Um, Vaulting Rhymes was my favorite. Yeah. Of the bunch. I know uh, you love the one story about uh, Little Red Riding Hood where she is in power. Yeah, that's in Revolting Rhymes. Because <laughs> uh, that was all twists on fairy tales and nursery rhymes, like uh, recontextualizing them and like making them darker and grosser, which is uh, something. I mean, fans of this podcast will probably be able to figure out that, that is a, that's a thing that I like. I think though this is this is a good sort of synergy of like because it's an illustrated book. Yeah. So it has the combination of like the literary novella as well as the sort of graphic comic book style that we end up re- you know reading. Yeah, we'll kind of like it's, we're we're, gonna, we're hitting the middle of the Venn diagram of the two things we cover on this podcast, which will be cool. But can you believe it's fifty episodes? I it's crazy. I mean, it really does not feel like it was that long ago that we started doing this podcast. But also, like, and I think about what we've done. Like, we did two complete comic book series. And a couple one-shots. Yeah. See how I'm picking up that lingo? Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, I guess it makes sense. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, we'll have... Well, we do two episodes a month, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So we're... We're how many? We're past two years in, right? Yeah, because some episodes, some some months, we had three. Yeah, before we we didn't really get into like the schedule for definitively for a little bit. Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, we don't need to talk about this right now. We can talk about it more on the fiftieth episode. A very special fiftieth episode. So dress up while you listen to it. Yeah, put on your mustard yellow three piece suit, just like the Fantastic Mr. Fox himself, <laughs> and um. Spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.